0: Many people are bored in church. <laughs> they have a sense that they ought to be doing something, but what that something is, well, they're not quite sure. So they show up every week, they sit in their chair, they listen to the preacher prattle, they put money in the offering plate when it goes by, and, and they hope that when they get to heaven, they're not going to have some kind of stern conversation with God where he's wagging their finger and telling them that they should have been doing something, but they didn't know what it was. Kind of makes me think of a guy named Larry Walters from California, a story I read about in a book this week. Larry went to the Army-Navy surplus store. He bought 75 used weather balloons. He inflated them, attached them to a lawn chair, which was attached to a pickup truck. Now, I know what you're thinking. This can't end well, but it's going to be awesome. (laughs) He was hoping, a friend later said, to observe the neighborhood from a slightly different angle and to gain a new perspective on life. He took nothing with him except for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a six-pack of beer, and a BB gun. A recipe for success, if I've ever heard one. Two and a half hours later, the Los Angeles International Airport reported an unidentified flying object in the skies of LAX, 16,000 feet in the sky. The pilot of a 737 who had first spotted Larry said, Well, I see what looks like a perfectly still man, and is he sitting in a lawn chair? And is that a rifle? SWAT teams, in an epic effort, which would have made Chuck Norris himself proud, were able to lasso Larry, who had passed out in his chair, and return him safely to the ground. Now, in case you're wondering, Larry's intentions was to get to a certain altitude, take the BB gun, and start shooting, the balloon, so that he could remain at that altitude. However, his friends say that when he released himself from the pickup truck, he shot in the air like a cannon, and he did the only thing that he could think to do in the moment. He broke open the (laughs) six-pack. And it was at 2,000 feet that Larry passed out. A local journalist asked Larry three questions. Larry, were you scared? Larry said, yes, only he didn't just say yes, but we're going to keep this PG for church. Larry, would you do it again? Larry said, no. And I'm glad that he learned his lesson. Larry, what, why did you do it? Larry said, I just got tired of sitting around. Maybe you feel the same way Larry does. Now, I'd encourage you to not become the next reclining cosmonaut. But maybe you are thinking to yourself Isn't there something more to following Jesus? Isn't there something more than just simply sitting around? And the answer to the question is yes. And I think, I suspect, that we all know what that something more is. Only there's one problem. We're not doing it. Let's talk about the current state of the Western Evangelical Church for a moment. Several years ago, I read a quote from Lord Carey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was using this quote with reference to the country of Great Britain. He said, Christianity is a generation away from extinction. Now, as I thought about this quote, I said to myself, isn't that always the case? We're all mortal. Unless someone picks up the torch, carries the torch, passes it along to someone else who will then go forward and carry the torch, what happens to the torch? The torch falls and its light is extinguished. I want you to think about the seat that you occupy for a moment. You are sitting here today because Jesus discipled an apostle. That apostle discipled someone else, who discipled someone else, who discipled someone else, and on and on and on down the line it went until someone came to you and shared with you the gospel message of Jesus Christ, which means then that the torch is now in your hands, and it must move from you to another person, preferably more than one person, or else the torch falls. J.D. Greer. Cite several statistics. Studies indicate that 90% of evangelicals have never shared their faith except with a family member, which begs the question, how do we call ourselves evangelical? LifeWay research suggests that in the next seven years, 55,000 churches will close their doors, never to be opened again. The number of people who attend church in the United States will drop from 17% to 14%. Only 20% of churches report growth, and only 1% of those 20% are growing by reaching lost people, which means that 95% of church growth is simply Christians shuffling from one church to the next. This can't be what the Lord intended when he gave us a great commission. I want us to look at Romans chapter 10. And this is not going to be an expository sermon where we're working piecemeal through this passage. However, this will set the context for our discussion about mission. Paul in verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, it will be on the screen as well. So, here in this passage, we see that Paul talks about our mission and he also talks about those who can accomplish the mission. A mission is something that you engage in to fix a problem. What's the problem? People need to call upon the name of the Lord. What Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This means then, if a person has never heard about Jesus, unless someone goes to them and tells them specifically about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, him living the life they couldn't live, him being raised to new life, victorious, defeating sin and death, they will never be able to come And call upon the name of the Lord. Which leads to the next question. Who is sent? I'm looking at them. You are. It is the responsibility of the individual member of the church. Jesus calls every day ordinary Christians of the local church to be missionaries for his church. You are his Plan A. There's no plan B. I know that often we think when we sit in the the chairs of a church that we are a part of the B squad. I don't know if you've ever been a part of the B squad. This guy has. He was a part of the B squad most of his high school career. But anyone who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is immediately put into the A squad. You are his plan. This means that reaching lost people here on Cape Cod is not the job of the pastor. <laughs> it's not the job of Pastor Chemo. It's not the job of Pastor Josh. It's not the job of the paid staff. It's every member's job. Michael Horton. There's a big difference between saying that pastors discharge an essential ministry by making disciples and quite another thing to say that they are vicarious disciples. Studying, praying, meditating, and witnessing in our place. We can easily assume that we have discharged our duty by paying church workers to be disciples for us. In fact, when you think of a pastor's responsibility, what does Paul say in Ephesians 4.12? Does he say that the pastor's supposed to grow out good hair and style it this way and create this TV-like persona so that when people come in the church, they laugh at just the right moments and cry at just the right moments so that the church grows? No. He says the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? Reaching people for the glory of God with the gospel. For building up the body of Christ. Why? Because it is the everyday ordinary Christian that Jesus uses for the sake of his glory to expand his kingdom. Now, this means then that you and I are called to leverage this one life. God has not given you two lives. He has given you one life. And he calls you to leverage this one life, to leverage the resources that he has given you. He calls you to leverage the influence that he has given you for the sake of spreading the gospel. So the question is not, am I sent? The question is, Where does Jesus want me to go, and how does he want me to accomplish his mission? Let's talk about the where for a moment. Jesus wants you to share the gospel in the normal places you go. Sometimes when we hear the Great Commission and we hear that little phrase that says, to the ends of the earth, we think the mission of the church is in some distant, remote place. But remember, the Great Commission builds out of the spheres of places that we find ourselves, and it begins not there, but here. And so, if that's the case, then I think there's a couple of points we learned from that. The first is that I believe that God has placed certain, if not many, people in your life that only you can reach in a unique way. I can't reach them. I don't know them. And who's to say that they want to hear me anyway? It's not like I'm going to have some divine moment where I say just the right thing to them individually and they're going to come to Jesus Christ. They know you. They've seen your life. They've seen your testimony. And God has placed you in their path so that you could communicate the gospel to them. I'd like to think about another thing with you your vocation. All of us are working somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, 50, even 60, dare I say, 70 hours per week in a job. It's very common today to view a job as climbing the ladder for the sake of benefiting myself, increasing my reputation. Martin Luther, though, was one of the Reformed theologians, and he viewed a secular vocation as a means of glorifying God. He didn't create this dichotomy between the sacred and the secular, in some sense, that my calling as a pastor is in some way more worthy than your calling and what God has called you to do. In fact, the word vocation comes from the Latin, to call. It's a calling. Reformers saw work, whether sacred or secular, as God's call for your life. In fact, you can derive this principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. You might remember when we were working through that, if you were with us at that time, And the Corinthians were asking the question on whether or not they should leave all of the things that they were doing before Christ in order to somehow meet some higher spiritual plane. And what does Paul say to them? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Robert Bella has insisted that we need to recover the idea that work is a vocation is a calling, a contribution to the good of all and not merely a means to one's own advancement. J.D. Greer, he writes this, when you say to the average Christian, serve Jesus in business, most assume that you mean opening up a hair salon called a cut above or a coffee shop called Hebrews or St. Arbucks. Or perhaps forcing awkward moments into the sales call. Now that I have gotten you some life insurance, how about some life after death insurance, huh? (laughs) Many Christian business people think, I just don't think I can do that and keep my job. And they're probably right. Serving Jesus at work is about doing your work for the glory of God and the benefit of his creation and leveraging appropriate, you like that word, appropriate opportunities to make disciples through those relationships as you go through life. My wife Katie, she views Her calling in life as a stay-at-home mom to be a missionary to the unreached people group called the Wheeler Children. (laughs) When asked what she did for work, one Christian mom answered this way, I am socializing four homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of creation. And what, might I ask, do you do? (laughs) I think about this with retirement as well. God has called some of us to leave our everyday nine-to-five job, but that doesn't mean that he's ever called us to retire from the mission. The mission begins with the moment you accept Jesus Christ, and it ends when we breathe our last breath or the Lord Jesus returns. That's why I'm so thankful for our primetime group and the vision that they cast in the annual report I would commend this to you to read what they were saying about the senior population here on Cape Cod and how they feel called to go to them. I think that is a great vision. God has sent each one of you in one way or another. For some of you, that means that you are going to be called to leave job and home and go somewhere To spread the glory of Jesus Christ. For others of you, you are called into the dark jungles of your own home. For the sake of his glory. How do we do this? Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Mark Dever says that the Christian life is the discipled life and the discipling life. Discipleship is our act of following Jesus Christ. Discipling is a, a subset of discipleship where I help someone else to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus says, in Mark 8.34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So to be a Christian means to be a disciple. And Matthew 28 tells us that our calling as a disciple of Jesus Christ, so it's not whether or not we are a disciple, but it's whether or not we are a good disciple or a bad disciple, is that we would make more disciples. What is discipling? Probably the simplest and most helpful definition I've read comes from Mark Dever in his book Discipling. He says, It is helping others follow Jesus. This means that discipleship and evangelism are not two different activities. I evangelize in the process of discipleship because in order to help someone follow Jesus, I need to introduce them to Jesus. I love the definition because it brings discipling down to the level that we can all handle. It doesn't require a seminary degree. You're not waiting for some special curriculum to fall out of the sky for discipling to be made easy. In fact, One pastor has said that 75% of discipleship is informal. This means that as I'm discipling people, I'm teaching them to read the Bible the way that I've learned to read the Bible. I'm teaching them to pray the way that I've learned to pray. I'm teaching them to tell people about Jesus the way that I've learned to tell people about Jesus. So that if we're engaging in the Christian habits of the life, guess what? We can make disciples. I believe that Jesus Christ also instituted the local church for the sake of discipleship. Michael Horton has said this, There is no mission without the church, and no church without the mission. Mark Dever would say that the local church is itself the basic discipler of Christians. Bill Hybels has said, The local church is the hope of the world. Why? Because when the local church stewards the message of Christ, it is truly the hope of the world. And if Jesus instituted the local church for the sake of discipleship, then it means that the local church must fulfill its responsibility. Mark Dever again. If it's unwise to do discipling without a church, it's worse to do church without discipling. J.D. Greer. Our success as a church will never go beyond the commitment of individual members to make disciples. You see, as we continue in our vision as a church, we are only going to be as effective as we, the individual, every member of the church, see the roles that we are conducting in the church as a part of the bigger process, discipling. David Platt, the president of the International Missions Board, once made a, a very powerful point through an illustration. He called a bunch of people to come up onto the stage and they were all pretending to operate a fire truck. So one person was called to drive the truck, another the navigation, another on the hose, another to make the siren go off and another to keep the Dalmatian happy. Now, After they had all got positioned into their roles and they started to operate the truck, Platt would go to each individual member and he would say, and can you remind me what your job is again? And they would tell him what their individual responsibility was. After he had gone to each person on the fire truck, he said to the entire group, you're all wrong. Your job Each and every one of you is to put out fires. I don't care if you're successful at driving the truck. If the house burns down, you failed. Many gifts, one purpose. Some to play music for the glory of God. Some to serve food so that people feel welcome when they come. Some to give us vision for mission. Some to be deacons to care for the needs. Some to be elders. Some to teach the word of God. Some to be out in the parking lot and be a warm, welcoming face to people. Many gifts, one purpose. Expand the glory of God through mission. I want to take a moment and think about our strategy for reaching the lost. Now, churches, generally, if they have a strategy for mission, which, might I add, we need to have a strategy for mission. uh, If you do not plan, you plan to fail. So if they have a strategy for mission, it falls down two lines generally. One is to be attractional. The other is to be missional. Attractional represents the idea of creating an environment that is naturally attractive to people. Kind of makes me think of the movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. So the idea here is if you build uh, an atmosphere on Sunday morning that is warm and welcoming to people, that they will reoccurringly come back to the church. And one of the things that they've done pretty well is they have thought comprehensively about... uh, Looking at church through the eyes of a person who hasn't been there for a while, has never been, or is coming from a different place. Missional churches, on the other hand, believe that they must mobilize the congregation to go outside the walls of the church to engage the unchurched and dechurched people. So here's the question Should Osterville Baptist Church be attractional or missional? The answer is yes. Yes, both. We need to be attractional in the sense that we say to the unchurched, the G church people, come and see. Our God is attractive and we want to create an atmosphere that is inviting to you i think of paul's words in 1st corinthians 14 he commands the the use of the gifts to be ordered in the church and he says in verse 23 if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter will they not say that you are out of your minds basically come on guys Let's not make the mission of the church any harder than it already is by making our worship services completely inaccessible to people. And that's why, as I think of our church, I thank God for people like Dina Anderson, who is our hospitality coordinator and is leading a wonderful hospitality team. You know, she has been very influential and helpful to me as I think through the eyes of someone coming into our church for the first time. You know, I am no good in that department. I was like born in the church. like Not literally, but close to literally born into the church. She says things to me like, you know, Rob, you shouldn't assume that people would just know your name. You ought to give people the page number of the passage so that they don't feel like an outsider as we're going to a place in the scriptures, we should really consider not making statements like, doesn't everyone know? And then say a biblical truth. How would you like it if you walked into someone's house and they made those assumptions when you came in the door? So God has really used those type of influential thoughts and I know that there's others here that have those same types of thoughts for the sake of expanding our understanding of hospitality. And I'll tell you, I've had some awesome conversations lately. People have come to me and they've said, "You know, I really feel like when I went into this place, I was concerned. I've heard certain things about churches, but then I came here and oh my goodness, it felt like home." That's awesome. I um, also thank God for my good friend, Jacqueline Melanson, a seasoned Christian in the Lord. The other week we were talking about certain changes in the church, and she came up to me in between the services and said, you know, Rob, I was really struggling with this particular thing. And then I went and I started thinking about it. And I want to make this change. Now, because I want to make this place, this space, friendly for young families. <laughs> Y'all, Jacqueline is my hero for that comment. That is awesome. The fact that you can think about a particular preference that you have, but then lay that down for the sake of others, so that this would be the space that God uses. Our goal is to make the gospel as accessible as possible to as many as possible so that we think through the songs that we select. Even when I'm thinking about the the message, the things I say, as we think about the signage, as we think about the parking attendance, as we think about the way that we present ourselves, all for the glory of God. Now, is it enough just to be attractional? We've already said no. Why do we need to be missional as well? I want to talk about nuns for a moment. N, not, no, not (laughs) N-U-N-S. N-O-N-E-S. This is the group of people in America who check nuns for their religious affiliation, and it's a growing demographic. In fact, I think the last statistic I heard was 25% of people checked this box in our country. Now think about two statistics we just heard, okay? The church is declining from 17% to 14%. 25% of people checked the box, none. When you think of a nun, I want you to think of someone who comes from an entirely different religious background. It would be like us trying to share Jesus with someone who's Muslim or Hindu or New Age and on down the line. They do not casually make their way into churches for no reason. Just like we don't casually make our way into a mosque. Not for Easter, not for marriages, not for funerals, not for awesome Christmas Eve services where there's ripping guitar solos. One writer from Great Britain who has a population that has grown now to two-thirds religious nuns, has said this. That means new styles of worship will not reach them. Fresh expressions of church will not reach them. Alpha and Christianity explored courses will not reach them. Great first impressions will not reach them. Churches meeting in pubs will not reach them. The vast majority of unchurched and dechurched people would not turn to the church even if faced with a difficult personal circumstance or in the event of a national tragedy. It is not a question of improving the product of church meetings and evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from the meetings and the events. So if you, every member, do not see the mission as your responsibility, it's unlikely that these people will be reached on Cape Cod. I have talked to multiple people in my time here, who have never set foot in a church and do not intend to. It's not just enough to say, come and see. We have to go and tell. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now I want to ask us a closing question. What if we all own this vision together? Worship, transformation, mission. If a balloon's filled with air, you can keep the balloon afloat by what? Smacking it every few seconds. But what happens when I stop smacking the balloon? It does. For many church members, this is how the pastor keeps them in the vision. I could do this. I could yell something different every week. You guys need to be generous, and I smack the balloon in the air, and then everyone comes back, and the total giving of the church increases by $1,000 the next week. Or I could say something like, you need to share Jesus with your friends, and then we insert a Jesus phrase awkwardly in the middle of a conversation because we felt guilty during the week. Or I could say, people need to volunteer for the nursery ministry, and then sign-ups go up for a month. But each time I smack the balloon, the balloon only hovers a few seconds in the air with the smack of obedience, right? But eventually it falls back down. And so churches that are doing this, the next week people are holding back money or they're stopping their volunteering after the first diaper blow-up. <laughs> but what happens when I fill this balloon with Helium. The balloon naturally soars on its own. There is no smacking required. So if we as a church own the vision together, we will soar together. If God fills us with a passion for his glory, worship. If we hold to the gospel message, and we offer our lives up to Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice, transformation, if we feel God's overwhelming love and passion for those who are lost to such a degree that it actually causes us to get outside of our comfort zone and go to them, mission, then we will become the worshiping, transformational, missional church that God's called us to be. Now, as you're going out the doors this morning, I've asked the ushers if they would hand everyone a balloon. Aren't you excited? (laughs) Who doesn't love a balloon? I know what you're thinking. Boy, I need one more balloon in my life, don't I? It's not for the sake of giving you anything by way of a present, but to remember what we're talking about here. I want you to take this balloon and I just want you to put it somewhere to help you remember what we've talked about the last three weeks and ask yourself a question. As a member of Osterville Baptist Church, am I going to fill this balloon with air? Or am I going to fill it with helium? And my prayer is that you pick number two. Let's pray.